Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. Thanks for joining us again. This week we are with James Woodall. By we, I mean me, Dan, Jeff and Alex. All three of us this week for a a change recently. James is a, a friend of the show. He is sustainability lead at Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. He's former head of sustainability at Allies Morrison. He's loads of experience, but loads of stuff within the architectural field and sustainable building design. And James has been heavily involved in the commercial Letty retrofit guide or the, the development of it. Um, yeah, I won't keep you any longer. We'll go straight into the episode. Thank you for joining us. And um. Just heads up, the sound does go garbled at two or three points. You don't really lose anything. Uh, you'll keep the thread. I mean, we did at the time. It sounded the same for us. So yeah, it'll be fine. All right. I'll just let it get into the episode now. Cheers. Bye. I saw Patrick Schumacher, um, the head, obviously, of Zaha Hadid, who I yeah. disagree with profoundly on so many things, as a lot of people will do, talking a while that. ago about his vision for our for for architecture for the 21st century and there was nothing about sustainability and you think are you mad (laughs) well i think you they are (laughs) well i mean was it not zaha hadid's lot that were producing the the ski resort in dubai or saudi saudi yeah that got nominated like that is he he was griping about uh poor people freeloading looking to live in cities you know it's clear that his audience is not poor people or people interested in sustainability it's the rich saudis with lots of oil money who uh want to live in high quality buildings and don't care about the rest oh sorry no luxury buildings not high quality on that note welcome james so today we are with james woodall sustainability lead at skidmore owings and merrill and you are what's your role in letty I don't know. It's not hierarchical organization. It's it's not hierarchical. So you could never claim to have a role per se. You're not employed by them. Um, I'm a contributor. Put it that way, Mm -hmm. I guess. Cool. And you are also man at the school gates uh, with Alex, which is how we have come to, how you've come to be friend of the show, as it were. That's Um, a nice way of putting it. A friend of the show. I like that. Well, you're very welcome. Friend of the show. Thank you. <laughs> so we've been trying to. He's got a T-shirt. He's wearing a T-shirt with Dan's <laughs> gurning face on his chest. <laughs> we would like um, a T-shirt. You get a Zap T-shirt. Yeah, all, all in good time. But yeah, the. Uh, so we've been trying to set this up for months now, haven't we? I think since last year. Jeez, we've been chatting about it. Yeah, yeah, we've been chatting it for a long time. But uh, as uh, as we know, with uh, the little ones, a lot of things uh, get in the way of uh, of doing fun stuff like podcasts. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, uh, but today's focus we've just been discussing is going to be talking about non-domestic retrofit or non-residential retrofit. So a much more commercial side, amongst other things, typically. But um, do you want to give us a little bit of background on who you are, James, and what you do? And like, I'll tell you about where I came from. Um, so my my education, probably best place to start. I have a degree in architecture and then um, became somewhat disillusioned with architecture. I didn't feel connected to it in the way I thought I would. Um, then I sort of transitioned into sustainable design and, and did a master's in sustainable uh, building design, which at the time was felt to be a bit of a niche. It was it was the 
early-ish 2000s. So, you know, whilst sustainability was generally regarded as something we all needed to do, um, the teaching and the application of it was still a very engineering-focused discipline. Mm. And that's what I picked up. So I kind of, in retrospect, looked at it as getting the best of both, really. I picked up an architectural education in, in, in you know, discontinued it, but then uh, worked in, um, sorry, uh, studied in engineering school as well. So I, I, it, it's fascinating because I got to see how both architects and engineers approach problems and tackle them as well. And I think that's held me in good stead, actually, to communicate with both sides of that that coin. Um, you don't fight with yourself, no, over the two. Yeah, I'm concerns. often conflicted. Yeah, I'm often conflicted. Yeah. Um, and from, from doing that, I worked in, so I left education, um, joined a, a small practice, worked in architecture for a little bit um liked it but felt limited i would say in terms of what my my bigger ambition was after coming out of doing my masters you kind of feel like you do want to change the world a bit and it's great that every student has that and probably we could talk about that as well afterwards but from there i joined uh the bre and i did a bit of work in briam working on the technical standard so i did yeah it was an interesting time actually to see it from the inside um and you could you could fill an hour just based on that and then from there spent a bit of time i moved to canada spent about five years in canada uh doing what i do now so I, that's when i kind of realized what my what my calling was i guess and so i was working within architecture but in different capacity and became the sort of sustainability person within an architectural practice and i always felt like architecture was my kind of home environment it's where i felt best placed but to approach that that problem of architecture or you know the task of architecture and practice from a different perspective, looking at it solely for the lens of sustainability. And since then, came back, uh, moved back to London about what, six years ago, uh, joined Alison Morrison, became their head of sustainability. A lot of that work has been just effectively building up my um, proficiency, really, uh, in how to tackle this through different sectors, uh, from, you know, really civic cultural stuff in Canada over to large-scale resi um, and non-domestic over here. And then I joined SOM about, what, four months ago, something like that. So very new to it still i'm still getting to grips with the company and the size of the company because they're massive they're they're you know they're a global organization rather than a a solely uk one with an international presence and it's it's fascinating to see how you know the parallels exist but also you're you're working at completely different scales um so in that in that role are you so you're sustainability lead but is that like Hmm. confined by a geography or are you like a global sustainability lead because There's the a, reason I'm, yeah. I'm interested is because, like, you know, there are significant differences, typology, climate, terrain, accessibility, mm-hmm. uh, in all sorts of different places. But the principles are the same globally. Like, they shouldn't need to yeah. be that different. Yeah, it, it all relies on understanding the climate. And so SOM have a global team um, who have, you know, we're based in London, we're based in Chicago, we're based in San Francisco, all over the place, in, in mainland China as well. And, and we work globally across different projects. Naturally, the time zones mean you kind of work on where it's best because you can talk to people within that same that same remit. But um, yeah, we have a global presence and I work everywhere from, God, I don't know, I was in Chicago working there all the way through to Dubai, uh, in Hong Kong, and then back to London within the same week, you know. And so you're you're kind of transcending different climates, which is fascinating, you know, because you have to really get to grips with it and you have to become almost like a, a climate chameleon you have to change change yeah. it figure out what your understanding is and the principles might be the same jeff but how you apply them 
to different buildings in different contexts it's very different so that that's been the fascinating thing for me to work across those different climates well even think even thinking about the technical stuff like um like um you know breathability and uh and whether you want uh how you want your wall buildups to be comprised uh depending on on you know uh, the differences from one climate zone to the next uh, the, you know that, that that's kind of very yeah very very important to be on top of that stuff if you're going to be kind of uh yeah climate hopping or whatever you know yeah yeah, yeah. i mean one thing i would say is that from allies and morrison i felt like i knew i knew a lot about sustainability to be able to tackle most projects right you kind of know all the fundamentals and you know being an advocate of passive house you think fabric first and everything associated with that and it's fascinating because you work in a different climate say hong kong for example is where i was working a lot last week and i don't go there i work from here work there right i'm not saying i travel over the globe and stuff my carbon footprint's bad but it's not that bad and um so i was working in hong kong and it's it's fascinating to see that the impact of certain things like improving your fabric have a, a diminished impact in different climate zones like yeah. that so you're looking at things like u values and you're saying you know you know point what was I looking at? Like point point three or something like that for a wall, and you think that's shocking, and you yeah. you halve it, and you think that must that must have a difference, and it's it peanuts yeah, in terms yeah. of the impact it has, and so you're looking at it, and you're having to appreciate some of the, the the sort of the finite elements and the causation of that, and it's based on what's happening in that local climate. So things like natural ventilation, for example, yeah, and shading do have a higher influence there, um, just based yeah. on the knowledge of the climate. So it's um. It's really, really interesting. It's why it's important not to be dogmatic. I remember a long time ago um, featuring in our international building section in the magazine, a passive house in Mexico City. Um, and it would be generally taken as gospel. A lot of people who talk about passive house would would reference heat recovery ventilation. I probably have done myself uh, at times because um, of kind of the need to kind of talk in shorthand terms. Um, you can't caveat every, everything you say. Um, uh, to, to reference heat recovery ventilation as mandatory or as a requirement of passive house, actually it's not. Um, yeah. um, and uh, in that case, they were able to show because uh, what you need is the the uh, the air, the supply air temperature to be high enough to ensure the comfort standards and the, the hygiene conditions, they call it. Um, so in that case, um, the consultants were able to, sh to satisfy the Institute that the source air temperature was high enough um, that they didn't need heat recovery. Um, so they just had mechanical extract translation, for instance, you know, so um, uh, understanding that, yeah, uh, while building physics are universal, um, uh, the requirements from one region to another can be very different. So you need to be able to be flexible so that you, you must have to have a really good, um, you can't just do the kind of surface level stuff. You actually have to understand it when you're working, you know, like really understand yeah. it when you're working at that level, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to pick up on that that comment, Jeff, that that was an interesting one because one of the things I've always advocated about passive house is that it's a performance standard, and a lot of people, it almost habitually and almost by coincidence, have kind of created this formulaic method of saying, "Here's how you get to passive house." Yeah, right. People know that it's 0.15 U value. They know that the, well, the air tightness is a given, but yeah, you know, the the fact that there's an EHR system in there isn't necessarily a given. And and it's the fact that there's a performance standard that the the levels of what you have to meet the method can be very different and that's given for the UK but also in different climate zones and I think that's underappreciated and it's probably undercommunicated yeah. as one of the sort of the the, the preeminent benefits of passive house because it does allow 
entirely different approaches to reach the same outcome that can be respective of the different climate contexts. Well, this is it. Wolfgang Feist, the founder of the, of the Institute, has said, uh, when we interviewed him a long time ago, he said, um, the thing about the scientific method is that, um, you know, if you test your ideas out um, and you see if they stand up and and if, if new evidence comes to light, you know, or, uh, for application in a given context, for instance, um, then your position has to change. And that's the way you can't be dogmatic about these things, you know. Um, but I think that that's put people off, you know, in the past, like people yeah. hear how people have reached a sort of formulaic approach to it. And it's put people off because they just hear how restrictive it is. But that restriction is only through people's sort of proven. It's kind of the tried and tested, right? I think people have given a tried and tested and almost advocated for that as the only way to do it. Yeah. Whereas really, you're only as good as the tools you've got to do it. And that's where yeah. PHPP comes in. Yeah, exactly. The, the thing is, really, is that we're, as human beings, we're completely predisposed to try and systematize everything. That's a real problem. So we're always on the lookout. The number of organizations we've spoken to who are always on the lookout for the best typology to start off with for retrofit, for example, and you know, how systematic can we make this? It's not even about the built environment. It could be even from the user experience perspective. It's like, how can we just categorize things to have the path of what they think is easiest resistance to get to their goal? And we're just applying this without, as you you guys are just saying, without really thinking about the fact that it's just not appropriate in all the circumstances, and probably yeah. in many circumstances. Yeah, I think it's. I think the key is with this, um, and we probably are touching on this already. You focus on the outcomes. You know, focus on the actual performance. You set the performance uh, targets, and this this actually could be really useful from a marketing perspective too, because you're trying to then focus on the benefits. You give people a sense. This is what your building will be like to live yeah. in, you know, um, in terms of comfort, in terms of health, in terms of energy use, you know, um, that's what you want to focus on. And, and uh, yeah, it might be in certain uh, climate zones and so on to, to do it and to do it cost effectively that there are very similar solutions most of the time. Um, but uh, it's not absolute, you know. Well, I mean, focusing on Passive House, this is part of my beef with Passive House as an idea. Like it. It is the platinum standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that sort of stuff. But all of a sudden, it devalues all the things in between, which can be very good. And you don't always need passive house everywhere, just as you're describing. Mm. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. I mean, it's interesting hearing this perspective that, uh, like, you do enough buildings, you do enough retrofits, you do enough across the world, and then all of a sudden, the problem, the challenge is resolved to look at the physics and take into account the climate rather than just repeat the thing that we did last time and repeat the thing that we did last time, whether it's passive house or shitty, wimpy home building is mm -hmm. the thing that we are all used to. Like in the Western world in particular, I can't speak to Asia or uh, anywhere else. Um, I think that's really interesting. And that echoes with like Alex and I, we've done enough websites, we've done enough messaging campaigns that it doesn't really matter what the subject is. We know how to get the people to tell us what's important and to turn it into the thing that it needs to be to achieve the end goal. So I think this is a really valuable piece of advice for anyone who's contemplating how to get stuck into it. Don't focus on the goal, like the process is just a means of helping you to get there. And yeah. the other bit is like this focus on Passive House emits a, there is a glaring omission in it in uh, talking about embodied carbon, which we haven't because Passive House doesn't. This came up in that framework conversation that we were having last week, Jeff. Yeah. And the 
What's, do you want to tell us about that report that you, you've you been touting, that graph that you were showing me the other day? Oh, this is uh, uh, the Irish Green Building Council's um, uh, paper. Uh, we can put a link in the show notes. Um, they just this week published a paper um, with uh, academics at University College Dublin, um, uh, uh, some, uh, Oliver Canan and uh, Dr. Richard, Richard O'Hegarty, um, uh, looking at Irish uh, housing stock um, and um, the trends in terms of of de- decarbonisation of uh, total energies, including uh, not just the regulated loads that will be included in the national methodologies like the heating of hot water and stuff like that, um, but also the plug loads, um, and looking at embodied carbon as well. And what they're finding, there's a graph in their paper, which is really interesting, um, which shows that within a few years from now, as before 2030, um, according to their calculations, the, uh, the, uh, the embodied carbon is going to be higher than the operational. So that's uh, extra. I, I've still got to interrogate it, but they're good people. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'd say there's, there's, there's credibility, you know. I think that graph, the chart is really interesting. It's a bit complicated to read. Like, it's not easy. But, like, the to see the ratio between embodied carbon versus operational carbon, like, the ratio half, like, more than half, potentially. Mm. Uh, like, it's really significant. And it is something we are fundamentally unprepared for. Uh, yeah, I would. I would point out what the, um, uh, without having read it, I'm going to comment on it. <laughs> um, so in, the, in, the, in the in the matter of the day, you know, the, um, the hot take, the the blind hot take. Yeah. Um, so um, I in Ireland, we've moved to a situation now where in new homes, um, uh, in the region of about eighty five percent or so of new homes are heated by heat pumps. Okay. Um, and uh, from the analysis I've seen in this regard, uh, given the decarbonization that's happening with with grid electricity, um, the, the, there is a world of difference between um, the operational carbon emissions related, uh, um, the, 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 uh, the body to the carbon emissions related to operational energy use um, from a heat pump with a decarbonizing grid uh, compared to a gas boiler, right? Uh, so, the ratio, um, a ratio of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, um, and I'm uh, not buying any of the nonsense about hydrogen. Um, sorry. Um, so um, uh, you know, uh, we don't not to try, try not to do science fiction here. Um, but um, the, the the so so that's a really important kind of caveat to add. Um, if you had another country where there wasn't as much of a commitment to uh, electrification of heat and decarbonization of electricity, um, uh, you might you will find that uh, that uh, embodied is uh dwarfed by operational so is that sorry, so, sorry dan uh, is that is that responding to purely the operational side of it jeff or is that responding also to the fact that the the impact and the footprint of the manufacturing process in the embodied side of the coin is also going to be impacted by a decarbonizing grid as well that's a very good question but well, the problem um so again i'll continue my blind hot take here um, <laughs> um, so <laughs> And we, we might return to the report next week, perhaps. Eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll have the guys on. Um, um, but the, the way, um, as I understand it now, the, the way the methodologies are uh, that, that you'd be following for for uh, for life cycle assessment are done, um, you you're going off the basis of EBDs, for instance, for pro- for for environmental product declarations for products that 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 would be based on current um, carbon intensity of the electricity, for instance, used in the manufacturing process. And if 
say you've got like a, in the UK, um, it's a 60 year reference period for life cycle assessment for buildings, um, 50 years in, in Ireland through the, and, and in the EU. Um, but um, because of, of the, the levels framework, um, um, but within that 60 year period, um, if you've got a heat pump and it's assumed to last for 15 years, 17 years, that kind of thing, um, you're assuming the replace, you're assuming replacement heat pumps and you're assuming that they're manufactured in exactly the same way um, as the, as the, as the ones that are currently done have been manufactured, which is clearly patent nonsense. Um, so, um, you know, uh, this is one of the reasons why I think, and I want to get onto Letty at, at a stage, um, but, um, the more I learn about Letty, um, uh, and looking at your guidance on whole life carbon and so on, and, and the, uh, um, uh, the, the targets that we set there, the idea, Letty have, um, two targets don't they they've got a full cradle to grave target for buildings um uh um you know from the birth to the life to the death of the building effectively mm -hmm. um um and uh they've also got a module a which is the, the the what i call the kind of conception and gestation stage target um that i think is very useful because to quote, if I quote to quote uh, Donald Rumsfeld, um, uh, just to annoy lots of people, um, and it would annoy me too if if I was a listener, probably. Um, uh, there's you've got the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns and so on. Um, and in this area, when you when it comes to module A, this is the area that we have the fewest uh, unknowns, I suppose. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have most confidence in that data, um, and it's the stuff that we're kind of cropping into the atmosphere at this particular stage. And that's, uh, so it's important to kind of to focus on that as one of the targets, you know? I couldn't agree more because there are still, I think it's, there's less disagreement now than there was probably about 12 months ago on this topic, but there are still those who would advocate wholeheartedly on having a life cycle, sort of holistic life cycle appreciation of the impact of one thing on lifespan of a building. So the, the best one I've seen, and Simon Sturgis is, a, is an advocate, or used to be an advocate of this, um, was the whole double glazing, triple glazing argument oh, God, about, yeah. about do you go triple glazing and triple glazing is worse over the lifespan because of its embodied carbon content. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't pay back. Or I think, I think I'm, I think I'm correct in, in saying that I've probably not done it justice to the argument, but one of the things that Letty made a decision to do was to, really look at it in two instances and recognize the fact that yes they're interdependent and there are things that need to be reflected on in looking at a to c but also the a1 to a3 the sort of product stage of how you manufacture it, how you extract it what, what are the things you need to create that product yeah that's the upfront thing so that's what you carry to site that's what you build that that impact is undeniable yeah that's the, that's the best way to put it right that impact is undeniable when you exaggerate the lifespan of your consideration that's when it becomes disputable i would probably say yeah yeah because you're not in you're not creating that product there and then you know that there are different factors and and, and all sorts of curveballs could come your way so i think letty really wanted to focus on both and recognize the fact that there's an upfront impact that specifiers generally architects have to acknowledge and have to play with that a1 to a3 figure because it's probably the most important thing but don't dismiss the a to c consideration and, and treat well this it is it way. and don't and don't rely on defaults too much because there's innovation happening all the time so i mean you know i, I have to dig it out but there was a story um a few months ago i saw about um uh, what looked uh i don't know if zero i'm always wary of the word zero carbon but um, um or net zero but uh, there was a new process for glass manufacturing um to to get 
very low carbon at least and it looked like it was kind of kosher rather than accountancy sleight of hand and um you know in other words uh if you repeat just like we were talking about with passive house earlier if you repeat the uh a finding that you have on uh maybe what might be common uh properties of of, of products or, or whatever at a given moment in time as if they're set in stone and they're they, you know that they will always be that way people people hold on to that information um and it, it informs and you know it forms prejudices i suppose the people you know uh and views that uh that, that ultimately might be very, very harmful, you know? Well, they are. Like, you see evidence of those things in, like, facts that people hold true. Like, did you know people only use 10% of their brain capacity? <laughs> horseshit. Absolute horseshit. <laughs> like, those people, those people do, Dan. Yeah. Like, the, the, like the, the, the guidelines on alcohol consumption for pregnant women until very recently was based on like a really small sample of women in like around Paris, like 200 years ago or something daft like that. Like it's like all of these things, if they're felt to be, this is the Stephen Colbert thing, like truthy enough, (laughs) if they feel real, they last much longer than anything else. So we're we're back to our Trumpism from the the start of the podcast. Um, Exactly. Like these things really matter. So in light of, this complexity, these challenges. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you're doing with Letty with regard to the the, the commercial retrofit guide yeah. work that yeah. you've been doing and sure. yeah. maybe how it addresses some of these issues? Or compared yeah, to the problems. I don't know. We yeah. we hope. Yeah. It's um so for those who don't know, Letty have long been invested in retrofit and in summer 2021, I think, they released the retrofit. I don't know what they call it. The Climate Emergency Retrofit Design Guide, I think, is the correct title. And it was really heavily focused, if not universally focused, on domestic, sort of small-scale residential, because we recognised that was the biggest piece of the pie, generally, that we had to try and tackle and solve. And Letty were really keen to put out a sort of a, a methodology, let's say, of approaching domestic retrofit and a scalable solution, but also applying targets to things as well. So it wasn't just let's do retrofit because we know it's necessary, but how do we do retrofit and what does good look like? I think that probably sums up a lot of what Letty are trying to do, really. It's about mm. surmising a methodology, a method of getting to something, and then also elaborating on what good looks like. So what's the end destination for everyone to get to? So that was summer 2021. I think it's been really successful. People have really held it in in in, in good stead and, and there's lots and lots of good feedback we've had from that and then on the back of that letty are then planning two uh new publications one of which is the thing that i'm technically uh leading um which is the non-domestic retrofit standard so i call it a standard it's a design guide effectively to using the same um the same approach to create a method and to and then we're working with the UK's net zero carbon building standard to to kind of better define what those targets are, right? So the net zero carbon standard is focused, you know, most of it is focused on new build, but there's this constrained option which they're developing as well, which is effectively saying retrofit. It's anything that is not new build, really. And so we're working with them as a sort of joint initiative to help develop the targets for what the end destination will be for retrofit of non-domestic stock based on the different topologies that exist. And we're kind of working in uh, a few sectors to say, let's just tackle what we think are the uh, most appropriate things first that people are really craving uh, from us. As you know, non-domestic buildings, it's so diverse, whereas domestic, it's quite simple, right? 
what we had to tackle from the outset was how the hell do we do this right what do we tackle and how 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 do we not create a task that is going to last decades to complete and by that point you know we're already extinct so <laughs> one of the things we were really keen to do is kind of pick off the biggest pieces of the pie and the most i would say the least challenging pieces of the pie the least contentious pieces of the pie when it comes to the the split of non-domestic energy uh, consumption and, and carbon emissions so what what we're doing is creating what i see as a sort of a modular approach uh, if you know the climate emergency design guide, you know that it was focused all in one. And it, in, in looking back at it, I think within Letty, we realized that it probably took a lot longer than we wanted it to. Part of that is a realization that you're asking a lot of volunteers to do a lot of work. Yeah. And it takes time for that to happen. So for the non-domestic one, what we're doing is we're picking three sectors initially, which are commercial offices, uh, schools, and higher education. We're picking those three because they represent effectively three of the most consuming and we're using that in combination with what i've kind of called the spine document which is that methodology so what are the key principles around non-domestic retrofit which effectively transcend every single sector mapping that out uh that's probably going to be where we kind of refer back to the targets from the non uh, the net zero carbon standard and then we're then saying okay so how do we tackle that what's the method that be, people would need to kind of use if you're looking at it from a commercial office standpoint from a schools or from a higher education and it picks up on the sort of sensitivities that each of those sectors have. So there are different groups trying to tackle it from each angle, mm. all talking to one another, but all working within, you know, their own sort of respective entities to kind of pick up on some of those nuances that each one possesses. And eventually they'll add in things like, you know, say for example, if the NHS do one solely on health. We don't want to tread on their toes because we know they're already, they know their subject. So it might be that that becomes something we can just kind of bolt on. And this becomes something which can expand over time, but we didn't want to prohibit the entire document because we couldn't do all the sectors at once we're saying let's do three and then there might be a second wave where we do another two and it, it carries on like that that that's really what we're trying to do to help facilitate the conversation get it out as early as possible so that people can grow their appetite and demand more and and hopefully contribute to more of these things being put out that's fantastic um in a nutshell and um are you kind of trying to show to an extent where there are kind of consistent threads running through the different kinds of projects. I mean, part of it for me feels like given the the the, 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 diver, the diversity and the complexity and the, the range of different kinds of requirements you have across different non-domestic building types, you kind of need designers to, to really step up and learn so much more. You know, in other words, it's not um, cookie cutter approaches are not going to be possible really for the most part yeah. so you know if people will you know designers are there's it just it feels sort of like there's no two ways about it designers just need to massively upskill and understand uh the kind of issues that they may run into yeah i think that's the first first and foremost that's what it's trying to do it's it's meant to be an upskilling guide really about an approach to take what are the considerations that need to be taken at key junctions in the design process um for clients for designers um and other stakeholders, really, you know, if you've got different stakeholders involved, what we're trying to do right now is figure out who the hell our stakeholder, our main audience actually is for this thing, because everyone needs guidance, right? And we're having to figure out, you know, who do we limit that to in terms of a primary audience and who might be a secondary person that might look at this from a different angle? And how can we satisfy that need? Um, yeah. If you try and cater it to everyone, it'll miss the mark. So, so that that's absolutely right. And it sounds like you're approaching it you're you're aiming for the right targets because alex and i did a bit of research 
with uh, best into the value of their low carbon learning program <laughs> and what came out of it. So the most insightful conclusion was uh, the first one, in fact, was getting people to mix had a massive impact. So getting the lads on site, mixing with the architects, that had a massive impact. And part of what that impact was, was it was hands-on demonstration of how all the different bits fit together. So you don't necessarily need to, you're not, it's not rote learning, it's problem solving. So you start with, we need to do this thing. Well, why do we need to do this thing? Well, taping, for example, air tightness. You need to do it for this reason. Oh, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, no, we've been doing it wrong. Like all that sort of stuff. Like solving problems they didn't know were going unresolved. Mm -hmm. And teaching people how to approach a subject, that's the biggest one. Because, well, like we were talking about with the your traveling the world having to adapt to different climates. So you're starting from the, the most base first principles building physics and then applying the climate physics to it and then you know yeah. the uh, then you get to do your job <laughs> from that point onwards <laughs> um like it seems like you give people the opportunity to learn and they will they will embrace it i mean not everyone some people they just want to build ski slopes in saudi fine whatever but, no, it's not fine. No. <laughs> All right, yeah, you're right. That is that leads us to apocalypse. You're right. Um, but one of the things, so we're talking about, so we've talked about all this stuff from people who know, like professionals, people who want to learn. But the people who we've only mentioned in passing so far are the clients, the people who are commissioning the work. And how prepared are they to deal with these questions? Because like one of the things that we spoke about when we met up earlier in the year uh, was how to get the brief right. If you just mm. build what the client wants, you get paid, but you're not necessarily doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to to understand it from a client standpoint. I, I try and talk to as many people in that sort of position as possible to understand like, okay, what, what are the drivers for them when it comes to retrofit? Because as it stands, there's nothing at a policy level from a sort of um planning policy level enforcing that to happen right there there are mechanisms you know the city of london just created that new methodology to assess uh new build versus retrofit but effectively that's that's a very very limited subset of the wider uk right and i think there's a lot of uh individuals within the planning um side of it the local authority side of it that, that are really struggling to advocate to 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 architects to kind of you know, explore that opportunity further and say, you know, you've got an existing building there. Why are you flattening it? Why why are you replacing it with something like that? And it's challenging the norm, but everyone's trying to pay catch up there. So I'm not answering your question directly then. I think I'm trying to get to the, the, the gist of it, but clients aren't being pushed to consider it. And therefore that won't that won't create the necessary sort of um stimulus for them to think about retrofit at a more fundamental level to create it as part of a brief right so there's looking at it that way plus also the carrot isn't there as well i i don't get the impression the carrot's there because what they get is embodied carbon savings through retrofit right potentially operational carbon savings as well but first and foremost it's an operation it's a it's an embodied thing you know you keep things on site you you retain vast chunks of what is existing you invest less carbon in creating a brand new thing mm. um 
unless you're a very quite well you're, you're a very informed client with the portfolio and there's a wider sort of um stakeholder interest in driving down your scope emissions i don't feel there's much of an incentive there for most clients to approach a site and say retrofit is on our agenda because why would there be and I, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate because I, I want to be the one that facilitates that for a client. But at the same time, I can understand why they wouldn't they wouldn't care. Yeah. Why why would they? What what's there well, to inform that process? Yeah. So what that so what Letty are trying to do is work with the local authorities. We're producing the guide that I mentioned before. The local authorities one is effectively a sort of ammunition kit to say how do you challenge applicants more without that backdrop of a policy reinforcement to really kind of push them. Uh, but you can ask very difficult questions. And I think that's what Letty are trying to do is in, inform that process ahead of more local authorities creating policy around Metrofit becoming first and foremost. You know what I do something? in this case? Uh, sorry for sorry for cutting you off. Yeah. What you're saying is is really interesting. Um, um, you know, the display energy certs that are required for, for public buildings. I yeah. rebrand them and I'd probably go quite, I'd probably get a fucking tabloid journalist in to do it. Um, um, Around things like say and couch it in the context of the of of the building's role uh, in the, the the building's impact from a global climate perspective. What is this a one point five degree uh, building? Is it is it a two degree building? Is it a three degree building? And put it on the bloody front of the building. Make it a mandatory requirement so that so that just stop uh, oil or whatever can come along. <laughs> And uh, and you know and 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 uh, yeah and 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 uh, you know protest and throw paint on the on the on the planet killing buildings you know um, but it needs to be more it needs to be more pressure uh, I mean I campaigned years ago in Ireland to, uh, and it got bloody overturned by the property industry lobbying against it to to require the energy ratings our national energy ratings to be included not just in the uh, uh, the stuff about including in the listings the online property listings got retained um but i i i uh lobbied also to get it included into the set the signage for sale into that sign so that so on a building mm. and that got removed on the on the basis the property industry said they couldn't afford the cost of the signs of having different kinds of signs <laughs> um, yeah, so you can't do climate change because uh, we couldn't, you know, get the cost of a sticker, maybe even on the sign, you know, it's just, it was unbelievable. Um, but, you know, that, that for me, I, you have to make these kind of hidden things more manifest, you know, um, and show people this is the damage that's being done or the goodness that's being done uh, by, by the client's decisions in this particular project. That, you know? that first step is by far the, the hardest, right? Because it's having to encourage people. And you could apply this at several levels. It's encouraging people to deal with what is a very inconvenient truth. Once you can get over that as a hurdle, I feel like people can kind of get to grips with what 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 is necessary to solve that. But you're right. The same thing with the signage is is effectively trying to get people to grips with what what is the damage that's being done with business as usual. And if that's not transparent enough, there's no driver for change because people seem to be in this sort of you know, business usual sort of, you know, um, journey to nowhere effectively. And it's, it's a real struggle. It happens on several fronts and I can see it evident everywhere. Part of my job is just to educate, you know, it's, it, yes, I work on projects here, there and everywhere, but at the same time, a lot of what I was doing at Allies of Morrison and probably doing SOM is, you know, we do lots of CPDs around, you know, how to, how to leverage certain things, teach people about what embodied carbon is, for example, architects aren't being taught this. 
You know, they, mm. they might be right now, but you've got decades and decades of people who've been working in this capacity that that know what they're doing, that don't really feel the need to change because they've, they've probably made quite a bit of money out of it. Um, and you're having to teach them effectively new skills. Well, they're used it, to being pillar figures as well. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard, right? And you've got people at the top of that tree that, that you know, are, are trying to say the right things and keep up. And I'm trying to be sort of empathetic there because they, I feel that there there is a genuine passion to change, but it's a there's a limitation on how much they could really pick up, right? And they need to be able to say the right things, but also know when the right opportunities are to create that change. And I think that begins with challenging the brief. So going back to a point that Dan made earlier, the best thing that people at the top of the tree could do is just challenge things and ask more fundamental questions of what they're receiving as a brief from an architectural standpoint, that is. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I mean, the big barrier to Jeff's uh, goal there in the the adulterers a uh, emblazoned on all the inefficient buildings. Uh, what is it? The scarlet letter for for poor building performance. That's what I mean. Is the fact that no one in the trade likes having the homework marked, and there's no agreed methodology for marking so you, it. So you start like, with what, the good ones, Dan. Right. So this is how you get it in through the, uh, stealthily. You, you, the, 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 the school swats, the people who are doing the, the the really good ones, get them to display it, and also include it within it. Here's how bad it would have been if it was a standard building. So you or, just spread so, that. So like Michelin star guide yeah. for building performance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you turn it into a badge of honor rather than a shame. Yeah, it's not just that. But you build the shame in too. No. Sorry, Alex. What, yeah. what we said is that we need to challenge debris. I think that's the fundamental. Yeah. How do we make it normal practice? As you said, Dan, we people don't like having their homework marked, but how do we make it standard practice that the client comes up with a brief, a brief, and then he or she expects the architect or the advisor or whoever who's in front of them to go. I can see where you want to go with this. Now, let me use my own expertise because I'm an expert in this in this thing and you're not, obviously, the client. And here is what we need to do with your brief. So I understand where you want to go with this, but here is the path that we need to take according to the experts. That's what we need to make. So how do we actually make clients and architects understand that dynamic? That it's not just, and we've seen it with agencies as well, is the, and I've seen it a lot in the development world or the you know, web development world where the client says, I know what I want. I've spoken to my mate in a pub. And he says, I need this website. It's going to cost me 500 pounds and my nephew can make it. So I expect you to do the, the same. And they just go, okay. And they just take the hit on everything and everyone's unhappy at the end of the day. What you really need to do is you need to go, look, what's going to happen? The reality is this. This is your reality check. If you want something good, that's going to be you know, a long-term success. We need to go through this stage, this stage, this stage, use these experts, these experts, and these experts, and then turn out a solution that is fit for purpose. So how do we make that happen? Do you have any ideas, James, or it has to what we can I do? I think it's how you sell the outcome, right? It's got mm-hmm. to be down to because otherwise you're just it would sound everything you just mentioned would sound like a nuisance. Yeah. To to anyone else, right? Because it's not what they wanted or exactly. what they think they wanted, sorry. Mm-hmm. So what you have to convince them of is the outcome of what you're saying is is far more beneficial. And it it it, it actually knowing what they don't want, but they need. Um, mm-hmm. and how to convince someone of that. Um genuinely um i'm trying to think of the right way to put it but there's a there's a there's a courteous way of being able to do that which doesn't tread on toes and doesn't make it sound like you know more than them um but you're trying to convince them of what is a sort of added value to what their initial brief is that's not also costing them the earth as well from an architectural standpoint there do you know um lacaton and vassal 
the French, yeah, French yeah, architectural we've talked about practice. them a few times. I'd love to have them on, actually. They, they're yeah, they come up quite frequently. They do. They're, they're almost like the gold standard. I mean, they, they position themselves very well because they, they do what, what I'm talking about. They challenge the brief and they do it on a regular basis. And I think they, they pick their clientele appropriately as well. So I think they don't take on work that does conflict with their principles. And you can argue whether that's the right approach or not, but I think it's worked wonders for them because they've held their belief and they stick to it and they challenge the briefs of their clients. And they're, they, I think they pick clients who are receptive to that as well. Well, it's and where they don't, where they don't have a well. conversation. I don't think people have had that conversation with them to say, you know, how often have you challenged a brief and you've had a client turn around and say, that's not what I asked for. And they've gone, well, sorry, we, we won't do anything other than that. You know, I think that's the, that's the conversation that should be had with people like that, because that's how you learn. It's yeah. not about saying, oh, Lacata and Vassal do this all the time. They probably don't do it all the time. It's knowing how they got to that point and what mm. were the difficult conversations they had to have with clients to convince them of the merits, to create the examples that they can then show to new clients and say, well, this is how we did it for this one. This is exactly what we're thinking for you. Yeah. you know, it's, it's case studies. That's how you get there, I think. In that, in that case, isn't there also a duty for architectural firms and others to actually very politely walk away from projects and say, you know, we choose not to work with this? I, I mean, I've I've been on the podcast recently and talking about the importance of uh, deep research. And I was saying that there has to be a point where you decide what is, you know, what is your purpose in our in yeah. our case as an agency and what we want to do and what we will not do. And it's not about, you know, trying to necessarily save the world. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's great. But there yeah. has to come a point where you have to stop just taking any old project on just because it's it, yeah. it gives you extra cash. You have to say, no, I've got another purpose other than just, you know, paying my staff and making the the, the practice work. There's also the long-term impact of what we're helping create well let's not be hasty alex like (laughs) (laughs) if if you want to pay us to do a bad job we'll do it and we'll tell you we're doing a bad job no i fundamentally disagree we do websites and uh, messaging campaigns and we'll never talk about it like i'll take their money all right you don't have to alex i'll take your money i'll do shite work no No, no, you're gonna do no no, that's where we have to stop because that happens far too much i went to dan's working on a website with a booking system for uh for ski holidays in uh, abu dhabi yeah exactly (laughs) i I went to this i went to this talk about agencies about how you grow agencies and the the guy was presenting was saying oh we all have our uh, tobacco firm in our in our back pocket we always you know take those on because they pay the bills but we never talk about them. So how can you reconcile the fact that you're on your website talking about the impact you want to have and the, you know, the good you want to do in the world? Because we all have to actually get to that point, but then accept money from the guys who are actively destroying it. Like that that video we saw um, uh, where they were mimicking, what was it about the, 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 the banks, the investing ba- investor banks and the, the petrol firms. So they had this sort of... Uh, it's that game, of it's the, the Game of Thrones video, not Game of Thrones, the two, Kit Harrington and uh, his missus, whatever she's yeah. called, I can't remember, from Game of Thrones in a relationship counselling office. That's the one. Uh, or whatever it's called. Yeah, so, or you know, the bank's always saying, oh, yes, I love I love the, the environment, I love it, but really, well, you know, what they're really in love with are... The, the old companies are bringing them the money. You can't do that. You yeah. have to. You have to make a choice. I'm sorry, but you have to make a choice and be and be firm in that. It's interesting and, with regard to the local authorities, though, because we've sort of cast a few aspersions on them not being proactive. But a big problem where with the way local authorities are funded and social housing and things like that is they don't have any money to do it. So they have to. The only way they can uh, raise capital to make a difference is by selling off stock or getting someone else to, someone in to 
spunk a load of cash and generate a lot of economic activity. So it's like the proverbial cancer victim and GDP or the car crash and GDP. Knocking it down is better for the economy. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. James, I'm really interested, though, in talking about knowing more about your approach at non-domestic buildings. And um, I mean, I think uh, you were alluding to this before, but finding ways to you've got to bake in some benefits, you know, show people, show people once you, I have a firm kind of view that when you, um, if your sustainability approach, um, while you can try and make the hidden things, the embodied carbon and so on manifest, uh, you know, in ways, um, um, and, and do decent kind of communications and marketing around it. Um, if you decouple your notionally sustainable raising from, a, you know, tangible, benefits uh for for for, uh for the owners or the occupants of the buildings i think you're on a hiding to nothing so how do you you know when you're trying to kind of convince a client uh that uh, to to be to to be good to do good Mm -hmm. uh, or to allow you to do good for them how do you sell that to them you know that's a great question um i i can tell you an example and it's it may not answer the question sort of absolutely but i think it's an interesting way of looking at the problem and an approach that i think som have taken to addressing that so a lot of the work that we get is through competitions and you'll have clients come to you with a brief and it's probably a good example of challenging the brief as well so a lot of what we do is large buildings large towers right and historically SOM have been kind of at the forefront of that and so i think this has been an interesting sort of junction to say how do we redefine how we're known in this market and and recognizing the impact that we have had and will continue to have on the built environment with a nod to what is a, a an increasing proficiency for retrofit uh, and an appetite for retrofit across the city and beyond so in london we, we were given this competition brief by a client who was probably a maybe a foreign investor client that may not have understood fully what the, the contextual circumstances in London were about retro first and that whole agenda. But we were given a brief for a new building effectively on, on in place of one that was already there in the city. And the thing that I found fascinating, because it happened before I arrived, the thing that I found fascinating was that they decided or we decided to challenge the brief in an indirect format and say, well, instead of giving you what you want here, what you've, what you've said you want, a brand new building, a big shiny building, replacing it, flattening what's there and ignoring the impact that comes from that, we're going to explore three options of a sort of either refurbish and extend the existing building. We're going to then do sort of two versions of retrofit, and then we're going to give you a new build option as well. And we're going to compare them side by side on the pros and cons of each one. What we gave the client at the end of it wasn't a single option. They didn't win the competition, but I think this is one of those things where you have to hold yourselves to your convictions. Mm. They felt that was the right approach to do and to kind of recognize what was within London the, becoming the new norm. And they wanted to become the advocates on the, the sort of forefront of that new norm. And they challenged the roof and they said, okay, we're going to give you options for retrofit extend, retrofit, and and then the new build option. And I think what inherently they were trying to do is make the new build option as, as not poor, but less glamorous as possible. Mm. trying to do that as well architects are very good communicators and visual communicators i mean and they're they're very good oral communicators as well but visually they create enticing visuals to get you to to kind of bond to something a solution and what i found fascinating was that they put so much attention into the retrofit one and the refurb and extend one and and treated the new build one as a sort of less of a priority i i I, the way i saw it at least was that and you know there there were huge benefits coming from the sort of embodied carbon the the build cost 
um, the program. They really tried to explore every avenue in which the retrofit and the refurb extend options had tangible benefits to a client who was interested in time, money, and 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 letability of that new building. So they really had to go back to that client's sort of drivers and say, well, you've asked for a new building, but what's at the core of that? You know, what are you really, really interested in here? And it's normally mm. around cost. It's around how long it takes to get to the end product and what's the, the what's the the desirability of the new solution that do we create for them? I can't tell you why they lost that that project, but I think it set a precedent um, for how they want to continue doing that. And what I found fascinating in addition to that was there are there are they're not just architects, they're structural engineers as well. They've got MEP consultants in there as well. So there are a, quite a diverse mix of professionals within the same entity, which is quite uncommon in the mm. UK and elsewhere. But it, it gives you the opportunity to work much more collaboratively, pointing back to something Dan said again earlier about the need to have people working collaboratively with the trades, but also different design disciplines. It doesn't happen enough here. We don't talk to different design disciplines and ask what they're interested in, how they could change things at a more fundamental level. Yeah. But the fact that we're able to work much more closely with structural engineers to examine what the structural constraints were of that existing building and how you could reach that retrofit solution optimally, but also attractively, was the sort of the, the key thing for me. They, they created a new structural system, which effectively, that this sort of diagrid system, it was really fascinating and really um aesthetically it's a new precedent for how they want to approach these types of projects in the future and i think it's just a matter of time until that becomes the new norm that these clients can't just demand new build because architects informed architects i'll put it that way um will want to do something more what what i'd love to do in a situation like this um where you have a fascinating story like this um i think first of all i'm sure this is happening already to some extent with varying degrees of quality um communicate in really simple terms what the kind of key decisions were and what the impacts are, right, sustainability-wise, right? Put them in language that ordinary people will actually understand, you know, whether that's visually or or um, or in, in actual wording. Um, and then make a point of the fact that you're proposing to tell the story of the decisions you've taken, right, in the finished building. You know, um, there's an architect we had on a few weeks ago, John Moorhead, um, an Irish architect and building physicist, who, uh, uh, as a consequence of the journey he's been going on with uh, embodied carbon calculation recently, the fascinating kind of findings that you get, uh, applying that to passive projects. He's just started off his own back, putting uh, signage up on his sites, uh, sh- showing uh, with with text, for instance, and uh, graphics showing, showing um, the impacts for anyone walking by uh of the decisions they're taking so these these could be really good ways to make clients feel good about uh about the decisions they're taking you know and get more buy-in from them you know yeah yeah well, it's the should should stay well let me ask a bigger question um i'm asking you questions now which oh is God. fascinating yeah, should should sustainable yeah. buildings look normal or should they do something more and become wear it on their sleeve, so to speak. And I think there's different ways to do that because in the 90s, I think you had this sort of expressive sustainability where you had the sort of, uh, what is it, bed Z and stuff like that, you know, where it became like a very direct expression of sustainability. You had the wind cowls and stuff like that. Yeah. I think nowadays architects are trying to make sustainability more inherent in design outcomes. And I think it's less around that spin and it's more about advocating to what is there to the passerby. And I found a really good example, kind of similar to what you said, in in Canada, when when Passive House Canada 
probably know all about them, but yeah. they, they they kind of rebranded themselves and they created this new identity. And one of the things they were really keen to try and do in their their brand was use site hoarding as a sort of um, a new attraction thing. So when new passive house buildings were going up across the city, the site hoardings could say things like, this building consumes 5% of a typical building. To yeah. the passerby, I know we talked about the sort of rule of thumb and, and all that, but I think that's an impactful message. You don't oh, have yeah. to show, you know, what the what you know how you got there necessarily but for anyone that walks by they say you know i want that that yeah. that's really fascinating and it creates that sort of point of intrigue that people want to know more about it but just a really hard slogan like that or something just really that hits you quite quite hard as a passerby it can become impactful and i don't think enough is being done of it, to be honest with you no i agree with you and i think that's the way to do it i think it's a mistake to to well, I think it's tricky to 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 have a to 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 limit sustainability to a particular aesthetic. You know, um, it can't be that. Um, I'm well, go back to my uh, pretentious uh, university uh, kind of media studies and communication studies stuff, and then there was this. Um, I remember kind of writing as a as a kind of a way of arguing. My my dissertation was basically an argument for uh, for how my taste in music was better than everybody else's taste in music. So prove it academically, right? Which is complete nonsense. Um, but um, the point that I was trying to make was that uh, I was interested in music, whereby there was this kind of scene I was trying to to, to explain, where you had different kinds of bands and, and acts who uh, were not articulated uh, by a particular by a shared sound or 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 visual aesthetic um but rather by a kind of an un, almost unspoken but shared view uh, an understanding of of how music should be made uh, and it was kind of a response um to um to every independent music scene that's ever happened since word go ends up becoming um uh, uh incorporated you know commodified and turned into a kind of a product and, and into a genre and, and all that kind of stuff um um, and the life gets tends to get sucked out of it, you know. Um, and um, uh, with, the, I think there's a there's there's a similar thing. It's funny, you know, talking as the editor of a magazine uh, that's focused on a a particular, I guess you could call it a standard or brand or whatever you want to call it, passive house. Um, to, to take that view, but because uh, these things can be useful, but I think I think uh, you want to try and be as you, you, you don't want people to be able to pinpoint it and say that's what it looks like because of course then fashions change and people say oh i don't want one of those you know yeah yeah one, one statement that i've heard people say a lot and i do cling to quite a bit is that sustainable design is just good design yeah and that that means a lot to a lot of people in different ways i think it's an important message because i think the principles of good architecture and good urban design more fundamentally good urban design are well-founded and people shouldn't perceive architecture, sustainable architecture, to compromise those types of things. I think that's one of the key messages that I'm really keen to get out to people um, for new, for new probably new architecture rather than retrofit. But, you know, I think it's one of those messages that it is a debunking exercise that needs to be done, really, because sustainability has grown up on that sort of eco-house movement thing where it has looked markedly different. And I think that's part of the the difficulty now we're having to overcome. It's created a... a an appetite amongst certain people, but it's also created that divisiveness around the the impression that it creates in people. Yeah, well, we've talked about this before on the podcast, uh, where there is a, a false dichotomy in what is sustainable architecture or sustainable building design. It's either gr grand design style divorce accelerator buildings or uh, a Soviet block, like cookie cutter mm -hmm. housing. When the the 
truth is like the standard domestic building design in this country is cookie cutter housing. If you've ever caught the train through Battersea or been to any of the provincial wimpy homes, housing estates throughout the, the UK, Ireland's a little bit different. There's a little bit more character, but I'm sure that's been waning. What we really need from sustainable design is more ordinary, mundane buildings being declared. This is the most sustained, this, this really obvious office block is the most sustainable building in all of Dublin or mm. Norwich. Mm. Now, is it Goldsmith Street? I can't remember if it's Street. The housing, yeah, the social uh, housing, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a magnificent example. Like, you know, it's not... It, the only thing that knocks your socks off about that is that they actually did it. Like they got it away and it's performing so well. Like the, 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 well, it's, it's nicely designed. It, it's, it's nice, you know, it's very well thought out well, development, but it's modest, it, you know? Yeah. But um, you said, I mean, the word you've used nice. Oh, it's a nice, nice house. Well, I don't, that's yeah, probably the wrong. That's the first. Well, no, no, like that's fair. Like this shit don't need to be any more. Than houses that. that look like houses. Nick Brown yeah. talked about the fact as well before the positivist consultant that um kind of houses we need to to, to if you look in that context um uh, that we need to be designing are the kind of houses that a child would drop. Yeah, you know? like do you remember? I can't remember who posted it, but it was that uh, I think it was a Singaporean tower block, like a big mixed use space that had vertical gardens all up and down it. But uh, I remember Jeff. Uh, oh God! Yeah, commenting on it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but horseshit was his comment. Yeah, because uh, yeah. you know, like, oh God, why are you building a forest up the side of the building? It's a nice idea, but uh, the building, yeah, the building was twisting it was around, there a major kind of yeah, was cut out of it. It's just complete nonsense, you know. What a That's waste nonsense. of time and effort. Sorry, one Alex. Thing, one thing I think though is that you can't really stop people from you know, following design trends. We've always had them, you know, yeah, yeah. the years over the decades, over the centuries. They always change. I don't think we should stop that because no. that's just who we are. I think the fundamentals, and I'll, I'll bring it back to the word comfort, you know, even even in, in non-domestic buildings is, can a building, regardless of how beautiful or how ugly it is, is it going to be a, a building that performs? Is it a building that can be, you know, retrofitted again in the future because it will have a, a lifespan and, and things will change again. And it, those are the fundamentals is can you find a way that make a building that express human nature and, and you know, ambition, but also just have the fundamentals, as you said, good design is just a building that functions, that operates well, that has, uses low energy, that has uh, low embodied carbon, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we should be able to achieve. It's a balance. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Can we pivot slightly? Because, yes. Alex, you touched upon something which I'm also really fascinated by. And I think it's maybe a sort of side topic of every single conversation we've just had, but around master planning. I, I've never been taught academically about urban planning, but I have had exposure to it through through Alison Morrison and now through SOM. Master planning as a sort of design genre is is unique because you're creating communities and districts and cities in some cases. And one of the things I'm, I'm really keen to emphasize to most people I work with is, is the need to think about retrofit within a master plan. And there are really good examples across the UK um, where, you know, existing buildings, historic or otherwise, have been retained, been repurposed mm. and placed at the center of a new master plan. And I feel that that's the softer side. We've talked about the technical aspect. We talked about comfort, but there is a sort of a, a, a sort of pedestrian level. Uh, appreciation of retrofit that that isn't often focused on too much but i really want to try and i don't know how but emphasize the importance that it has in in cities because you know the, the more new stuff we put up the more 
unrecognizable cities become. And I, I do think there's a huge place like uh, in, for for retaining existing buildings as part of new master plans um, because of the, the benefits that they do hold in terms of memory and, and, and place attachment that people have to certain communities. And I think that's it's a really important thing. It's a really sort of it's a missed aspect as well. If you look at new cities and new districts, they tend to be just kind of raised from the ground. Right. But you don't know what was there before and yeah. you don't know how easy to navigate these things are when they all kind of look the same. Mm. So the history gives us an element of of looking to the past and being able to say, you know, I, I, I appreciate that was what was there. Um, and it's 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 fascinating because it's it's almost like a form of wayfinding as well. You know, if that building's been there for centuries, it's it's been retrofit in the past, right? It has that inherent capability of of, of becoming uh, flexible enough to accommodate change over the years, right? So that should be the way we should be designing new buildings as well. You know, to think about things that could be flexible enough to accommodate that change so we don't have another crisis. Well, and we're not is... having to think about retrofit again in 30, 40 years. Yeah. I mean, this is what Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman have advocated plenty. Like, we shouldn't be, we should be building once for all sorts of purposes. And we should always be building with that in mind. And they've been advocating it for decades and no one seems keen to listen because inefficiency is more profitable. If we have to yeah. knock it down and rebuild it, everyone makes more money. Well, um, it's efficiency for one purpose, right? To sing, singular efficiency is a, is a long-term inefficiency. Maybe that's maybe that's appropriate way of putting it. But you know, you're designing to one case, one case only, without an eye on the sort of longer-term stewardship of that building's impact yeah. on the environment. And the the only reason is that because there's nothing governing what it should do after its life right it's initial life what it's yeah. what its core purpose is so how do you influence that how, how do is it planning policy is it building regulations how do you how do you govern that process and create I mean, things that can be more flexible in the future it always has to come down to some sort of regulatory framework because no one's going to do it on their own because they have to right. cut corners now i think with commercial building design in particular i think that's really interesting because those buildings so an office block is built to be retrofitted like you know it's going to have to be retrofitted because you don't know who's going to be moving in and what they're going to do mm. like i spoke to a surveyor uh when before we bought this house the guy who did it like he'd spent a lot of time doing surveying work for commercial buildings and he said because we got into all sorts in the the conversation that i had that a lot of the work that he'd done in sort of building assessment and performance assessment and uh modeling and calculations by the time he'd finished his work, things so much had changed within the building before the tenants had even got in that uh, what he'd done was a waste of time. Like it was submitted and it would it would do the job it was needed to. And if you've got that sort of change before the building is even being used, what happens between the first two tenants? Hmm. I mean, uh, John Moorhead on the episode, which you have yet to catch up on, uh, <laughs> he he talks about uh the the way the building office buildings that he's worked in weren't performing appropriately 
and no one could work out why and no one follows up and there are all sorts of reasons for all of these things and sometimes they don't perform it was, it was, the, dis- the disconnect sometimes between say core and shell on one hand and then fit out on the other end you know yeah yeah, yeah. That, that kind of stuff you know um um uh, just uh, just li- people literally not being aware of of how to integrate the the services for instance that were there in the first place into the design that you have for for, for your particular occupancy of of that space you know or yeah. people not noticing when they don't work <laughs> because like the design they don't hang around it. no one hangs around after well, to find out yeah yeah and no one wants to pay for maintenance and there's no monitoring and there's no homework being marked on an ongoing basis. There's no check-in. Mm-hmm. And if it works, like all of a sudden you can develop some insights and like, yeah. oh man, we didn't need to install any of that system. But that uh, master yeah. planning aspect is really interesting, James, I think. Um, and I, I and as a, I'm always tend to get drawn back down into the granular kind of detail uh, and the stuff. But, but, and I can see that in this case too, that in other words, you know, uh, the the obvious example is something like um, is the impact that decisions that can happen in a master planning level could have on the performance of a particular building, for instance. Um, uh, you know, like um, uh, a wind, like a, the apartment building I live in. One of the there's two apartment buildings. With, uh, there's three three uh, big apartment buildings right next door to each other, and um, one of the sides, the side I go down to to, to walk into my front door, uh, the front side of the front door of of, of the core I live in. Um, it's like a wind tunnel because it's between two big apartment buildings. So you know the the the, the apartments there on those on facing that aspect are going to have much higher. Uh, heat losses um, than people on the other sides, you know, or uh, when in the context of retrofit, you know, um, it's like consideration of, or what John Moorhead again would talk about the right to light. Um, so, um, you know, uh, and the right to solar. So if, if a n- new building gets built uh, opposite you, um, that, uh, that um, cuts your amount of solar, that not only could impact things like, um, you know, uh, your your the yield you'd get from a PV array or whatever, for instance, could also affect um, the risk of mold occurring in in your in your building. You know, um, so there is that need for and, that, and one of the bits that I I'd love to see us attempting to tackle. And I don't know how to reconcile this is having that knowledge of 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 the impacts that can be taken at master planning level, for instance, um, on uh on the final actual building use you know yeah yeah it's it's i think it's an appreciation of the the impact and the influence that that design at that level has on the granular aspects of new building design um that i'm really interested in kind of examining the the potential of that in the in the in the letty climate emergency design guide there was a simple graphic which showed the same unit the same i think it was a flat it may have been a house just rotated 45 degrees and it was like several increments of 45 degrees and it showed what the space heat demand was every single time you turned it round. and there was an optimal which everyone knows is due south with yeah. most of the glazing facing south and there was a suboptimal which everyone knows is north but every single increment between that people aren't as cognizant of what the sacrifice is that it has yeah. and it's just simple simple graphics like that can really help to illustrate the potential of what you're designing yeah. it's just not not held in enough in a high enough regard, I guess, and appreciate it enough. And that's, again, just going back to what one of the sort of core aims of my job is just to educate people on what the impact of that decision-making is. A lot of what I do is just very simple, in some respects, analysis of emerging design concepts to highlight what are opportunities, but also what are flaws and how they could be better implemented. Um, Goldsmith Street, just to go back to that, the layout was quite simple. It's just, you know, several linear rows 
the orientation of those rules was a little bit against the urban grain, right? And so, but there was a there was a cognizant, there was a definitely a thought process that they had to be orientated as as close to south as possible in order to get the best return operationally for those individual buildings to get them close as possible to pacifier's performance. If they'd been suboptimally orientated, there's no guarantee those buildings could have certified. But that's the difference it makes, right? Um, and I think there's lots and lots of emerging master plan designs across the city. Unless you're plugged into that conversation, I just don't think you're you're aware of it. But there's so many emerging master plans that that the sort of street patterns are laid out, the road networks are laid out, and they inherently have sort of carbon emission impacts on on the buildings that are developed um, thereafter. So, you know, an appreciation of it from a design standpoint, but also from a, a sort of a recognition from um, authorities, you know, from a planning authority or otherwise, to say, you know, what's the impact of your master plan? Mm. Sh- show us, show us your math, show us your working. Be one thing that you know just needs more and needs more emphasis, I guess, across the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a fascinating area. Um, one it's sort of related, but I'm um just thinking again of the impacts of, of uh decisions. Whether you would argue it's related or crowbarred in um, decisions that could be taken outside of your building on your building. Uh, the, the Irish architect and building physicist Joseph Little years ago wrote a piece for us where he um, he showed uh, the impacts uh, from a moisture perspective of different kinds of uh, insulation strategies with, with with an existing wall type, historic wall type, and so on. And he showed with internal wall insulation a party wall between two neighbouring properties. Um, and uh, he showed that if, you, in addition to pointing out the risks that you can have with poorly conceived internal wall insulation from causing mold growth in your own building, he showed that there's also a risk uh, for your neighbor's property at that point. You know, um, you could be causing, so legally, that's really interesting, I suppose, as well. If you're causing mold for your neighbor because of decisions you've taken in your building, um, it's a fascinating area. There's loads of cans of worms here, though, you know? Yeah, unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we're probably coming up on time here. The thing yeah. we've not got to talk about was uh, senior leadership teams. And we have to education. have you back on, James, though. We have to. Yeah. Uh, well, um, well, we'll definitely do that. We'll make it sooner, I think, because I really, I, re- I would really like to get into that subject a bit more because I think it's really yeah. interesting because yeah. senior people within practices and within local authorities, they're the people who can make things happen. Or not. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we'll definitely have you back. It's, uh, a con- it's a conditional acceptance. If the passive shed is ready, then I want to be <laughs> in the passive shed next time. <laughs> now, you're, now you're putting pressure on me. On, on location. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the condition. I, mean, I, I, must say, I must say that James did text me this morning asking if we were actually doing it in the passive shed. But uh... he's, he's t- about 200 yards down the road from me. So it feels odd that I can't just, you know, it should be. And I think you're my right. Wife, my wife said to me, she said, are you, so are you not leaving yet? And I said, no, it's all online. She didn't seem, you know, she thought <laughs> yeah. that I was just going to walk into a room and you'd all be there, sat around a table waiting. <laughs> well, yes. I'm able to fit all four of us into, into the shed. It is not that big, but I think right, <laughs> next time it should be the two of us at the very least in the in the shed with the mic. Doing yeah, but, I don't think you've even really talked about it much, Alex, on the podcast, actually. No, I think, I think I'm just embarrassed about how long it's taking. Um, again, it's just uh, family life with a three-year-old just puts things into perspective. And the shed is, is moving ever so slowly forward, but it's... Uh, video video documentary, I think, is necessary. Yes, yeah, I do have, I do have <laughs> a new... Yeah. 
including of of me and uh, and Dan actually wheeling the the frame of the shed onto its foundation so that we could put the cladding that can't be accessible from the uh, the neighbor's side, which is quite fun. So maybe we should put that up one day. Is there? Oh yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, we did a what do you call it? A time lapse of us moving the sh- moving the shed on wheels. Yeah, I'm happy just... happy to narrate this this video. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> really pleased about that. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see what we can do. Um, <laughs> I was talking with Kira about content for our social channels, so perhaps that is something we'll pull out the bag further down the line. Um, is there anything you want to plug, uh, James, before we wrap up? You got anything going on? Uh, anything coming out with Letty? Uh, Letty, Letty have just, yeah, Letty, I'll do a Letty plug. Letty have just released the operational modeling guide. OMG, uh, which is a good yeah. read. Nice, OMG, nice acronym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag OMG. It probably won't be what you're looking for, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's. I'm still working my way through that one. There is so much in the pipeline this year, uh, in, including the non-domestic retrofit um, publication, which we hope will be out sort of late summer. We never talked about that um, yeah. in terms of when it was due, but that that's planned. Uh, and there's, I think, a circular economy um, document coming out too. There's lots and lots in the pipeline. So, you know, go onto the Letty mailing list to make sure you're you're aware of what's coming and when it comes out. Um, we'll include a link to the OMG one as well. That, that really interested me because it, uh, it's, from what I could see from, from looking at the press release, it's talking about the kind of modeling tools that are being used uh, for uh, for calculating the energy performance of buildings, which is exactly the kind of nerdery that I I, I like engaging with. It's um, a certain certain type of audience, definitely. Yeah, sense, but it's yeah. pointing out uh, that not all of the tools. That I think it's quite openly critical of SAP, for instance, and its limitations in this regard. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's lovely to have an organization like Letty out there that's not, um, you know, compromising itself. You know, for, yeah. in terms of, to, to, in order to get traction, there's a kind of they, radicalism which is fantastic. You know, yeah. there's a there's a provocation, and I think they have to maintain neutrality in order to be provocative. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, the probably the other thing I should probably say is uh, is give you a link to SOM's um, Urban Sequoia, which you probably haven't come across before, but it's effectively a research project they did about a year or two ago, uh, which was trying to examine, you know, what what the new tall building could be in the urban environment you know there's a lot about tall buildings in the urban environment saying that they're inherently carbon poor you know that they're mm-hmm. they're carbon impactful right and just to address the elephant in the room you know it's a lot of what they've been doing is their bread and butter so they really wanted to try and examine what a tall building could become uh they're not going away they well, how good placed in more informed yeah, exactly. locations and urban sequoia was meant to be a sort of research project into how good they could actually become you know um carbon sequestering rather than carbon emitting in the future so um it's a good read, I would say. It's a very, very, um, very visually communicative read, I would say. Oh, well, we'll definitely include that. If I may. All right, then. Say. Yeah, I'll yeah. yeah. Uh, or just the link, whatever works. Um, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. That's been great. And, thank you. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. If, it depends. If I'm, if I'm as popular <laughs> as um, John Moorhead, I've got to go back and listen to that one. That's the amount of times that guy's name came up on this. <laughs> oh man, it was it was really good. You, oh, you should have listened to him. Yeah. Um so uh all right then. Well, all the usual things apply. Toxic positivity, please give us five star ratings. Nothing else will do. We are very demanding and needy <laughs> podcasters, so we need your validation. Reviews as well. Um, join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC, and sign up to Letty's mailing list. 
Yes. Oh, um, share as well. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. Um, T-shirts, we'll crack on with that as soon as we can. T-shirts and tea towels. Um, it's also worth saying, um, I think that by the time this is out, the new issue of Passive House Plus should be online, at least digitally, and it'll be at the printers. And there's some really interesting examples, um, really interesting articles in there, uh, some some challenging articles from a passive house perspective as well, um, which are, you know, we, we like to kind of try and uh, challenge ourselves um, and uh, some, great, some inspiring case studies, you know. Yeah. So yeah, please subscribe to that. Advertise if it's relevant to you as a business. It's worth doing so because it lingers a long time. You get big bang for your buck. Jeff, did you know Jeff used to advertise a offer was it you don't have to pay for the advertising if you don't get any responses? We have an inquiry system. Yeah. Yeah. Some people misunderstood us a little bit. And we, you know, but we do offer, we guarantee inquiries from readers of live construction projects um, for advertisers. Yeah. Like that's how confident the publication is. And that is the, the value of it within the industry. Uh, James is a subscriber, aren't you? Or you have been. Ha- well, Alison Morrison have been. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, right, right. Talk, I miss it. Was a good sign. Yeah. Oh man, I miss it. All right, well, um, we'll carry on the conversation in a moment. All right, well, big up. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else? Have I missed anything? Um, no, just stop talking, Dan. Yeah, yeah I'll show. Sure. <laughs> Bye. All right, see you, James. <laughs> Bye. Bye.